Hi, I'm Evacheska DeAngelis, and I am here to welcome you to our internet radio broadcast, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Mind, Body, Health, and Politics brings you wide-ranging, uncensored conversations containing up-to-date information with prominent, nationally acclaimed authorities, scientists, and best-selling authors. We feature a wide variety of topics ranging from psychedelic science, expanding consciousness, mental and physical health, human sexuality, the environment, social justice, and much more. This program has been hosted by my father, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller, for 20 years, and we continue to broadcast because you listen. So please give us your support by subscribing free of charge at mindbodyhealthpolitics.org and joining our growing community. And now, here's my dad and today's guest. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being, and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that human beings live the most effectively and actually the most healthily when we live in community. We do best when we know everybody in our community by name or at least by face. When that happens, being tribal animals we tend to be very cooperative. We tend to be collaborative. We tend to be people who like doing things together, all sorts of things, from sewing circles to poker games, to watching things on television, to throwing things around, to fishing together, to golfing together. Oh, you name it. We like doing things in little clumps of people. We are tribal animals. And we love eating together. I mean, we just love eating together, getting around in little circles and eating and passing food. And, and sometimes we love the kind of food where they put big dishes in the table and everybody shares the same food. That's part of who we are. However, and this is a very big however, we must also be remember, remind ourselves that there's a very small percentage of us who are very different. These are not collaborative, cooperative tribal animals. These are predators, dominators, who have a whole different outlook on life. These are the people who throughout all of history would dominate those who were around. These are the people who, when we came out of the caves, had the biggest clubs. These are the people, when the cave groups got into little villages, demanded that the villages listen to them. And then the villages became towns, and the towns became cities, and the cities became areas, and then became kingdoms, and then became countries. And these very same people did everything they could to lead the countries, and they called themselves kings, and they put a perimeter around their country and called it a country. And this is my area, and that is your area. And for hundreds, if not thousands of years, these people these dominating predators called kings, they ruled the planet. Then we had some experiments with a very different kind of living. The Greeks and the Romans experimented with what we call democracy and republic. Instead of one person having all the power, people voted democracy. There were laws that were equal for everybody. That's called a republic. The Greek system moved on. The Romans tried it. 
And then came the great predator dominator, Julius Caesar, who crossed the Rubicon with his army and ended the Roman Republic and created an empire, which went then on for hundreds of years. Flash forward about 1,700 years, and our great founding fathers overthrew the king of England, overthrew the church, because by then the church had made a deal with the kings so that the kings ruled by divine right. What that meant was if you crossed the king, you were crossing God, and off came your head, and you went to hell. The kings had a great deal with the church, and many still do to this day. Flash forward in history. We overthrew the king and the church and created a democracy and a republic. And now 200 years later, we are still experimenting with that democracy and that republic. But it is a fragile thing, my friends. It is not here, as I thought as I was growing up, a given that would be with us forever. We must guard it. We must take care of it. And we must vote to ensure that we maintain a democracy and a republic and that we don't turn into a dictatorship and a tyranny as some would have us do. Look around the world. Look what's going on in places like in Italy now where the Mussolini group is trying to come back into power. Look at South America with Bolsonaro. Look at what Trump is trying to do in this country. We must preserve our democracy and our republic. In the words of one of my great heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I'm delighted to have with us Dr. Heath Scheckinger. He's a clinical psychologist, and he is also someone who is doing pioneering breakthrough work in an area that many of you might be very unfamiliar with. It goes by the present name of consensual non-monogamy. We're going to find out what this means and a lot more. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Heath. Hey, thank you, Richard. It's an honor to be here. Heath, to begin with, I have a lot of difficulty with groups that define themselves in terms of what they're not. Like there's a group in philosophy called non-dual. Well, mm -hmm. I know they're non-dual, and, and that sort of means they're whole because they're trying to get away from perhaps Cartesian you know, dualism uh, of the mind and the body and that we're all one. And when I happen to agree with that, but it's still an odd name. It's like, you mm -hmm. know, what's your religion? Well, I'm a non-Catholic. Okay, you're a yep. non-Catholic, but what are you? So I have that problem with consensual non-monogamy. Hopefully you can come up with a word at some point <laughs> that tells it what it is rather yeah. than what it isn't, what right? Not. So yep. to begin with, let's have you tell us about various forms other than traditional monogamy of living together. Give us an outline. Sure. So under the term consensual non-monogamy, and I agree with you, and most people do, even people within the space and having these discussions, and I anticipate that that will evolve with time, just as language did with other groups such as the LGBTQ community. And under the consensual non-monogamy umbrella, there are many different forms that this takes. Essentially, consensual non-monogamy is any form where the adults or the individuals involved are consenting to have more than one sexual and or romantic connection with 
people. And so some of the different subtypes, which not everyone even agrees on these terms, but as when we're trying to research it or understand it, we try to group it so that we can develop patterns or have a sense of how people might cluster in terms of the agreements that they make. One term is polyamory. And polyamory is where people focus on having agreements that allow for both uh, sex, but also to fall in love with more than one person. Another version to contrast that is swinging. And in a swinging or the lifestyle relationship, people tend to be, it tends to be more heterosexual in its focus and people have connections with others typically in a more party or a have experiences with their partner. And they tend to have agreements that tend to limit how much people are falling in love. So having sex outside of the relationship is okay. They tend to do that together or maybe swap partners, but they tend to have more agreements that focus on restricting how much people are going on individual dates or falling in love with someone else. Another term is monogamish. So that might be the couple that's predominantly monogamous, but maybe they have a friend that they have a sensual or sexual connection with it, maybe while they're traveling or that comes to town every now and again. And so that they, they have mostly a monogamous relationship, but they might connect with this person every once in a while. I would also say that polyamory is often confused with polygamy and polygamy has to do is more rooted in religious fundamentalism and even the Mormon church and has to do with having multiple wedded spouses. So the emphasis is on marriage in that context. Now, in, the, in all of these, the sex is a big factor, sexual aspect of the relationship. But in polyamory, and I'm going slowly as a way of saying I'm asking you to clarify, in polyamory, the distinction with it from the other groups is that in polyamory, there's an actual relationship amongst the people that is beyond the sexual relationship. Whereas in the other groups you described, it sounds like what's different is there's sex with other people, but there isn't an ongoing, what you might say, amorous or romantic relationship. Is that correct? I would say that that is how we're trying to define those terms, but it's, it's really... I think it's a, a, the waters are muddied. And, and I think there's plenty of people who identify as being in the lifestyle that feel very close and maybe even experience a sense of love toward the partner or partners that they swing with on occasion. They might be their close friends. And it's also common for many people to express really similar things. They might identify as say being in a swinging relationship, but still hold a lot of love for someone that they are connected with. They may or may not say that they are dating. And there might be people who identify as polyamorous that might have pretty clear boundaries around how much time or how much love or how deep they, they want to fall in love with their extra dyadic partners. So these are the broad categories that we're trying to use to just have ways of, of trying to cluster groups. 
but behavior doesn't always match identity and and vice versa. Really, we're talking about creating an acceptance for differences. And you might mm -hmm. say that that movement has been going on for a long time in the history yeah. of human beings, isn't it? Whereas there's a tendency for people to make differences as deficient. Like if you're right. not doing what everybody else does, then there's something wrong with you. Right. And you appear to be taking the position, as we psychologists very often do, that different doesn't mean deficient. It simply right. means different. Right, right, exactly. There was, a, there was a time that we held attitudes and very prejudiced attitudes, much more prejudiced attitudes towards, for example, interracial relationships. Right back in, I think in the 1920s, the, the support was around 5%. And now it's up on the upper 90 percentile, right? Similar in terms of support or perspectives around same sex relationships with support for same sex relationships being a really significant shift of, uh, I think even over in the past 15 years, acceptance has increased by over 50%. And I think we're hovering around 70% of people in the United States think favorably or accepting towards same-sex relationships or same-sex marriage. We are, as a psychologist, I am simply encouraging the field and society to have dialogue about what, exactly as you said, is different wrong? Is it harmful? It is time for us to question the assumptions that we are making about relationships and this halo effect that we have towards really privileging or proposing that monogamous relationships are the pinnacle that we should all strive for. Monogamy is a very robust and important principle or a way of approaching relationships that I think it's important that we honor and understand. But I think we also should be curious and, and respond to the data that's coming out that's demonstrating that non-monogamous relationships tend to last just as long, tend to be just as healthy. Even in some categories such as sexual satisfaction, people in these types of relationships tend to express higher levels of sustained sexual satisfaction over time. I'm reading that 92% of polyamorous relationships fail, whereas Roughly 55% of monogamous relationships appear to fail if you go by divorce rates. And when I read that, I wondered to what extent the higher failure rate amongst polyamorous people has to do with cultural pressure, because I also read that a very high percentage of the United States look down judgmentally on polyamory. You must be familiar with that data. Sure. Well, actually, I haven't come across that study that you're referencing, and I'm curious to unpack it and explore it more. I would be curious if, uh, you know, are they talking about primary relationships or secondary relationships? I suppose the, the study or studies that I've seen that focus on primary relationships indicate that the in terms of their duration and satisfaction are statistically equivalent. So I'd be curious about about that study and what it does say. I also, to your point, would not be surprised if 
non-monogamous relationships to your point because of what the minority stress that you are acknowledging, right? If they experienced additional pressures and stressors that people have to overcome because of the social stigma and discrimination that these relationships experience. Yeah, I read that the average polyamorous relationship lasts about eight years. I don't know if that's good data or not, by the way. It's just, you know, my I'm just beginning to research sure. the whole field, as I mentioned to you before, because I'm considering, very strongly considering doing a book on this topic. Mm-hmm. Once I realized the significant number of people, I mean, it appears, again, from my cursory uh, review, that there are at least 15 million people in the United States involved in polyamorous relationships. That's a large number. Yep. Yep. And I really see that potentially growing as well, right? Because we also have data that indicates, uh, so that's the, it seems like you're referencing the roughly 5% of people, uh, U.S. and Canadian adults that indicate they are currently engaged in consensual non-monogamy. But we also have a recent representative poll that came out that indicated that one third, so 34%, of Americans indicate that their ideal relationship structure is something outside of strict monogamy. And despite that, you know, only 5% are currently engaging in it. So there's this latent interest gap. And so I hold a lot of curiosity about what the future holds. And if that number, we're already seeing that, that number increase in terms of people who are curious. And I wonder that once the stigma starts to lessen, around this and that non-monogamy is seen as a model that may work for a number of people, will we see an increasing number of people that are exploring or experimenting with consensual non-monogamy? Heath, given that obviously one male can impregnate almost an unlimited number of females, and given that procreation is the driving force for humanity. What can you tell us about how monogamy came to, came about? How is it that the model isn't other forms yeah. rather than monogamy? Because in, in a way, monogamy is going to limit procreation the most. Sure. And I can see how, you know, in the time period when creating social structure and norms around this, I can see from having a limited understanding of sexual health and well-being that these principles that were established around helping and supporting a population in terms of the sexual health and well-being of concerns around disease transmission would lend itself to establishing a monogamous paradigm. I would say that what is shifting and changing is that we have more awareness of sexual health and uh, strategies to prevent that. But we also, with the birth control, it, it really shifts the dynamic around what is possible and how safe it is in, in engaging and having multiple sexual partners, right? And also giving people an opportunity. I think it's it's there's that one drive in terms of procreation, but there's also a number of people that do not want to procreate. And even I would say the the theories of sex for pleasure, right, are really uh, notable as well. And that there's plenty of people that are wanting to 
have sex without procreation. Yes. Well, the issue of pleasure is an issue in and of itself because there's been suppression, historically, suppression of pleasure for at least since the beginning of Christianity and perhaps going back to Judaism as well because the, the religions have, uh, have issues with, with pleasure. Right. The statistics indicate, Heath, that in the last less than 100 years, we have gone from roughly less than 5% of, uh, of, the, of women getting married are not virgins. In other words, 95%, 90 to 95% of the women who got married 100 years ago were virgins. And in the present day, from what I've read, 95% of the women getting married now are not virgins. Mm -hmm. So that is a dramatic change in human sexual behavior. And right. I think, I think it's, it's related to what we're talking about with regard to polyamory, because this appears to be a movement going yep. on, right. right, towards more what you might call experimentation with sexuality or more mm -hmm. freedom with sexuality? What yeah. do you, th yes? Yeah, certainly with, you know, especially with the sexual liberation movement in the 60s and 70s, right? I think there's even been a response that that started there. And and even, I think it, it even goes further back. And I'm, I'm thinking of the nuclear family model more broadly as well. And how there was so much of our cultural norms and laws were developed to support the nuclear family model of two heterosexual parents and their children. And that was an experiment that really was much more common in the 1940s and 50s. But really, I see that model being pushed by capitalism. But I see just an increasing number of examples of how that nuclear family model is increasingly becoming overtaxed. And it was promoted and popularized in a culture, you know, of advertising to main the GDP of the post-war vacuum, but it really lacks the communal support that was provided by extended families and close-knit communities and non-nuclear family structures, such as single parent families, blended families, chosen families have all become increasingly common in recent decades. And we're starting to challenge some of the assumptions that were made in that model, or even some religious paradigms or influences in terms of sexuality and perceptions on sexual sexuality for pleasure. But the traditional nuclear family structure of the two parents in a household is the minority now. The majority of families and relationships fall outside of that norm and I would say that we're in a different era. And this is why my colleagues and I are excited about creating an institute that is focusing on family and relationship structure diversity. We have an opportunity to start an institute at UC Berkeley. And there's just a lot of groundswell and support around supporting and acknowledging these families and relationships that fall outside of the traditional nuclear family norm and Consensual non-monogamy is just one expression of those families and relationships that fall outside the norm that tend to be more, as I see it as kind of a return back to having more community support and redundancy in our social support systems in a response to that pressure or that emphasis of the nuclear family model where we leave 
our families and home and kind of isolate ourselves with our picket fence and our 2.5 kids and try to get the majority of our needs met through our, our one spouse. Heath, did I hear you say that the nuclear family, the traditional couple, monogamous couple, are in the minority at this time in history in the United States? That's correct. With you, when you include single people, when you include blended families, when you include chosen families, non-monogamous families, that yes, the traditional nuclear family structure is the minority. Please elaborate on a comment that you made about the relationship between the nuclear family and capitalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really see that the nuclear family model was really promoted as a product of capitalism. Because when you encourage people to split off instead of sharing resources, right? Instead of having more of a community where we might share a dishwasher or share a washing machine, we were encouraged to buy our own home and functionally isolate ourselves. And so that we each need our own car. So uh, we each need our own vacuum cleaner, right? There's more products that we have to purchase to maintain ourselves or to, to reach this pinnacle of home ownership and uh, living with your spouse and your kids and, and the white picket fence, right? This was a concept or this was an idea that was promoted or an experiment in the 1940s and 50s that was really emphasized that was really a deviation from more of the culture and cultural norms of having multi-generational families and family support systems and structures and models that emphasized that there was a mutuality of support. You know, I was uh, influenced a great deal when I was younger by the counterculture movement that I was part of in the 1960s. And I was part of the uh, Back to the Land movement. And that's mm -hmm. how I initially went and founded the health sanctuary at Wilbur Hot Springs that, that you mm -hmm. know about, that you've been to. And in my study back in those days of intentional communities, what I was met with was a great deal of failure. I mean, we were attempting to live communally at Wilbur, and there were other communities that we were connected to and communicated with both in California and around the country. But for the most part, we were failing as intentional communities. Mm -hmm. And historically, one of our greatest problems in intentional communities was that we wanted to live outside of the cities. We wanted to be back in nature where we could be more self-sufficient, where we could raise our own food, raise our mm -hmm. own animals, raise our children communally, similar to perhaps the, the old Israeli system that they don't use anymore uh, on the kibbutz where the children are raised communally. And we yeah. wanted to experiment with, with those forms of living. But the difficulty that we had, Heath, was making a living. And when I say we, not just at Wilbur, because we figured out how to make a living at Wilbur by opening up to the public, but the communities around the country who were out in the country, if you will, yeah. had a very hard time making a living. So what would happen is members of each community would commute to some city to make money to bring it back to the commune. And mm -hmm. then what happened was the people who made the money then had more power 
in the commune, in the community, communitarian living, which was not a good thing because you don't want several people to have more power than the others. So sure. it, it was it was a, a very difficult system. And I'm wondering now if such communities, and I think this is related to our topic of polyamory, if such communities have a, a better chance of making it right. because of being able to work remotely right. on the Internet yep. from anywhere yep. in the world. Yep. And we're already starting to see that, right, with um, people having more flexibility, even in moving out of urban centers into uh, smaller communities. And yes, with certainly the opportunity for people to work remotely, I think that I'm really curious to see how this will shift and evolve. It certainly or is already happening. And I hold a similar curiosity about what's next and what this is going to look like for communities. And I really see polyamory as being, you know, one model that is not a panacea. Right. But it, it is, in my mind, should be something that should be considered an equally viable opportunity for people to consider. And yeah, but it's, but it's not going to, it's not a panacea. It's not going to solve everything. But I think it's something that should be presented as an equally viable option. You know, one of the people I interviewed for my book that's going to be coming out in a few months called Freeing Sexuality is a woman who wrote a book 20 years ago or so called Menage a Trois, a three in love, it's actually called, three in love, mm -hmm. about Menage a Trois. And one of the points that she makes is that living in a three is much more like growing up, because when you grow up, you grow up often, at least in those days, things are changing, as you pointed out. But if you grow up with two parents and there's one kid, there's three of you. If there's two kids, there's four of you. In other words, we're used to growing up in a, in a little group, or we used to be used to it. So living in a menage a trois sort of recreates more of the family feeling. And she thought that a lot of the drive towards menage a trois was in having this kind of family feeling. Yeah. Do, you res do you resonate to that within polyamory and, and what you're researching and living? Certainly. And we see, I mean, I think we all have seen examples of partners that feel isolated, right? Or that they feel overpowered by a strong-willed husband, or maybe someone feels disempowered. By having a third person in the mix, there's the possibility of there being a mediator or someone else who can see the dynamic and offer feedback and offer a perspective, right? And help the couple break out of a loop or keep the couple from uh, stepping into an unhealthy dynamic. So we certainly are seeing that and plenty of people in polyamorous relationships acknowledge the support that they receive from their other partner or partners in their dynamic uh, with, for example, their pre-existing partner. So yes, it certainly provides that opportunity for additional social support. Tell us more about the realities of polyamory. Like, how does it work? Do three, four, five, six people all live together? Do they all live separately and sort of rotate mm -hmm. about who they see? How do they mm -hmm. clump together? And how do you deal with somebody feeling left out? Sure. Yeah. And I would say that 
there are many different expressions in terms of what polyamory looks looks like from groups of people that have what's called a polyfidelitous commitment. So let's say it's a group of five people that lives together and they agree not to date other people and they're all committed to building a life and a uh, home together to uh, the couple that opens their relationship and dates other people and creates specific agreements for uh, their individual relationship. It really depends. What my understanding of the research points is that it doesn't matter per se what the relationship agreements are, but how satisfied people are with those agreements is really what, what matters. The most common expression of polyamory, however, is two people that have a relationship that open their relationship and that they have separate relationships. That's the most common expression of people who self-identify as polyamorous, but it certainly varies. Common relationship dynamics might be that uh, you have two people and they both have a separate relationship. I would say that it's common for numbers to gravitate toward that two, three, four people, because while our capacity to love, some people might theoretically say is infinite, our time and resources are not. And so it's really not practical or feasible for people to maintain close relationships, or there are limitations on how many relationships people can maintain simply because due to time and energy. And it might be something that's really important to someone in a, in a really important aspect of their life. And if they have five partners, well, they, they may not be able to spend as much time dedicating to other hobbies and et cetera, but that might be what, what uh, some people choose to do. The majority of people tend to hover around having one or two other partners, but then, you know, it really gets complicated into how do we define a partner? Is the friend that I have that we see, for example, if, if I'm someone's traveling and they see them, you know, once a year, do, do we consider that person a, a partner or, or not? Right. So it, it really gets into some challenges in even trying to define what constitutes a partner and how many partners people have. Well, we, we know, for example, if, if I'm seeing someone or married to someone, we're living together. If one of us starts having a relationship with a third person openly, that mm -hmm. means that, let's say it's my, my wife and she starts having a relationship with another man. Mm -hmm. Well, that means I'm going to be alone some of the time. So either mm -hmm. that is going to serve me because I like being alone or it's going to motivate me to try to find somebody else. Yep. Or the other possibility is I become or I am bisexual. So I say to my wife, well, listen, if you're going to have that man as your lover, I want to have that man as my lover also. So bring him home so we can uh, he can be a lover with both of us. Now, does bisexuality come into play in polyamory? It would it, it, just from the way I just described it, it would seem like it would make life a lot easier if we were bisexual. Yeah, bisexual or people who identify as bisexual are certainly much more significantly represented within the broader consensual non-monogamy umbrella for very obvious reasons, right? That, that you know, for a number of people that uh, it provides that convenience of being able to express both the hetero and the, the queer sides of their identity. 
And so certainly people who are bisexual tend to be disproportionately drawn to and represented in consensual non-monogamy, but also broadly with the LGBTQ community, people who identify as LGBTQ are three times as likely to identify as consensually non-monogamous. And, and, you know, there's lots of reasons as you might anticipate why that might be, I think in part because you've already deconstructed the traditional paradigm around heterosexuality. And then it's, it's almost like, well, what's, what's one more paradigm of challenging in terms of how I think about love and relationships? By the way, I don't, that word queer, I, I hate that word. For descri- I really do. I hate that word for describing a human being because mm. it has too much baggage. It, mm. It's it's not a nice word. Sure. It's not a nice word in our culture. And if we're really mm. going to respect people who have various kinds of sexual proclivities, regardless of what they are, so long as they don't do harm to themselves or others and fully accept them, why would we want to give him a name that, that, that sounds like, oh, forget about it. You know, it's not a very nice word. Interesting. So, yeah, I think that there's some, some potentially, I would anticipate some generational differences in terms of how people experience that word. Because it's my understanding that that word was reclaimed by the queer community as a way of kind of embracing it and really reclaiming the term in an empowered way. Yes. And I can see how generationally, if people that are, of an older generation, they've had more time and exposure of that being used as a derogatory term. So I can see how that might be a little bit squeamish to use that term. But for younger people that haven't had that history and and using term the queer the term queer in a very pejorative way is not really an experience that they had. I can see how it's much easier to embrace that term. And I, and I really you know I, I am supportive of people. Empower, in an empowered way, reclaiming the term. I think that that can be a really powerful thing. And so I certainly honor the reclaiming of that term and can acknowledge how it would feel squeamish and, and kind of a difficult thing to embrace after years of exposure of the term being used in a pejorative way. Well, thank you for that explanation. I understand that fully, that the difference between those of us who grew up with that being a pejorative word and those who don't have it as pejorative right. to begin with. Right. Uh, it's a bit of a stretch. It's a bit of a stretch for me because <laughs> I think if they look up the word, the definition and so on, it's still a little squeamish. I mean, but uh, but I do understand where you're coming from uh, in terms of uh, how they see it. Let's talk about children and polyamory. Mm-hmm. How yeah. do raising children fit into this whole picture from your perspective? Well, I would say not too much different than what we see in blended families or step families, right? There's certainly, for as long as humans have been humans, right? There's this examples of even, I would say, how it's healthy to have more than two caregivers that are really committed to supporting a child. And so it's no different than any other context, right? What are the data that we do have demonstrates is that children in polyamorous relationships don't seem to be faring any better or worse. They acknowledge a number of benefits that come along with having multiple caregivers, more people to give them rides to school, uh, more people to receive emotional and social support from. And then in terms of the challenges, I don't like having more than one adult caregiver around. You can't get away with as much, right? Or the, so in terms of what the, the kids seem to demonstrate is that those principles of 
parents being thoughtful and responsible in how they're making decisions around who they're dating, it's no different than let's say post a divorce when you know a parent is trying to make decisions about who to bring into their child's life. Those same principles apply in a non-monogamous context. I think it's important that we really assess people based on the decisions they're making and not defaultly assume that there's necessarily harm that is coming by having more than two adult caregivers in the life of a child. But I would say that this is often weaponized against people in child custody cases. One of the biggest challenges facing the non-monogamy community today is that especially in conservative jurisdictions, most often it is from grandparents or an ex-spouse that file a lawsuit or uh, make claims. And there's plenty of, of documented examples of non-monogamy or polyamory being weaponized against the parents as a way to gain child custody. Or it's even the, the, the potential threat is a huge dynamic or really significant dynamic that non-monogamous families with children have to address, right? Because picture that imagine that you had a divorce and that you had children and you identify as polyamorous. And let's say you didn't end the prior relationship on amenable terms. Well, you know, who knows what your ex-partner might think or who knows what your ex-partner's parents might think, right? And so you're, you're subject because right now non-monogamy is not a protected class. So people are subject to being discriminated against and that being used against them with there being no legal recourse. And, and this is, this is a big driving factor between, behind my colleagues and I at the Polyamory Legal Advocacy Coalition in working on supporting the passage of non-discrimination laws. And we just had historically the very first one just recently passed in Somerville, Massachusetts. And there's a number of cities that are also in the process of considering and adopting similar ordinances that protect non-monogamous families from this sort of discrimination. I want to talk a little bit about the political aspects of your work. You are the founder, I believe, of a new division of the American Psychological Association, Division 44 on consensual non-monogamy. Is that correct? That's right. So the American Psychological Association is, I think of it as kind of the mothership. And then there's these uh, smaller subdivisions that represent certain topics or populations. And Division 44 uh, is Society for the uh, Scientific Psychological Study of Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity. And the Committee on Consensual Non-Monogamy that I oversee with Dr. Amy Moores is housed within Division 44 of the American Psychological Association. Now, let's put that in perspective, please. Tell mm -hmm. us about the American Psychological Association. What is it and what does it stand for in this country? Sure, sure. Well, broadly, the American Psychological Association is the governing uh, scientific association that um, oversees and provides guidance and uh, principles and essentially is the governing body of psychologists and psychologists uh, within the United States and uh, kind of sets a tone or precedent for how to conceptualize mental health and creating standards for uh, effective mental health care 
but also overseeing the research that is conducted by psychologists as well, or and and uh, advocating for core principles that guide the uh, field or the discipline of psychology in all of its iterations, from clinical practice to research to education uh, and training. And it also has a history of playing a role as well in terms of the policies uh, and perspectives that it uh, takes really shape cultural narratives and perspectives on um, social issues such as the LGBTQ uh, rights, on race. And so uh, it, it certainly is an organization that tries to maintain a relatively bipartisan stance. Uh, and that may be different than the stance or the perspective that uh, sub-disciplines within the uh, American Psychological Association uh, might take, right? And to where Division 44 tends to take a perspective of, and, and part of their responsibility within the organization is really advocating for awareness of LGBTQ rights. And non-monogamy is, you know, in this position of figuring out where it lives, you know, is this something that should focus, you know, one of the initial conversations that we had is that should this live in, uh, I think it's division 43 is uh, couples and families and should it focus there or should it be housed in the LGBTQ division? And ultimately it was decided to house uh, our uh, then task force and now a permanent committee uh, within the LGBTQ division because of the overlap in the uh, experiences of marginalization and oppression that were much more consistent with uh, the values and and, and um, felt like a more uh, a better fit in terms of uh, where the committee would live. So it's fair to say that the American Psychological Association is the largest and strongest association of psychologists in the United States and perhaps on mm -hmm. the planet. I believe there are mm -hmm. approximately 25,000 or more members, maybe I more than that. I would now. have to look that up. I think it's even more than that now. But yes, roughly, yeah. it's, it's very large. Yeah. And so having a standing committee within that larger organization is in and of itself a form of acceptance of the credibility of this whole area of polyamory right. as a subject of scientific exploration, correct? Correct. And that's what, you know, was really significant. And, and we've really, uh, that's been one of the most meaningful things that I've done in my life and career. I can't tell you how many people have reached out to us expressing gratitude for normalizing this, their experience and normalizing who they are. For many people, they see it as part of their relationship orientation and, and their identity. And we've have a number of letters just thanking us and acknowledging how this gave them the courage to come out to their family. It helped normalize it so they could talk about their other partner um, and have the courage to talk about their other partner at work or with their family and relatives. And so there's, it, it feels, it's not the exact same thing, but it feels a little bit like in those early stages uh, when there started to be representation of LGBTQ rights, right? So there's 
uh, uh, we talked about, you know, over 15 million people in the U.S. alone that are currently practicing consensual non-monogamy. But before this, there wasn't really, at least in the professional scientific association within the field of psychology. It's also my understanding that this is the first time there's been a specific uh, task force or committee that has been exclusively dedicated to consensual non-monogamy in any national professional association, not just in the United States, but to my understanding in the world. So this was a very key and historic uh, uh, moment to have a committee and certainly a symbol that there was increasing awareness and support for this topic to be even addressed um, within this within this governing body. You know, an interesting thing that stands out for me in this conversation is how we started out talking about the importance of accepting that differences do not mean deficient. Differences simply mean difference. And yeah. yet, there is such a pull towards being, quote, normal, being mm. part of the yeah. main group, right. that you yourself right. are now talking about how polyamory, by being part of this division, there's a movement towards normalization. Mm. And in a way, that's very unfortunate, because yeah. that pu pull towards quote, normalization, mm -hmm. we, it, it moves us away from heterogeneity and the enjoyment mm. yeah. of a smorgasbord yeah. towards normalization yeah. and homogeneity, right? right? Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. And well, it's, mm -hmm. it, it reminds me too, I, I think that this is just a normal process that we as humans need to go through. Yes. Right. I think of um, how we have to go through this assimilation process. And even I think of one of uh, an example of that is uh, I think in like 2016, uh, Lynn Manuela Miranda said, love is love is love is love, really capturing this movement that was happening in terms of increasing support in federal uh, gay marriage just passed. And so he really seemed to kind of capture this moment of this reckoning or this recognition of how queer relationships or same-sex relationships are the same. It's like your queer neighbor next door. He was really emphasizing the similarity of uh, LGBTQ relationships. And that really captured them. And it was helpful for where we were as a society developmentally in our development and understanding of this issue of where people were. Of, I think you really have to focus on the similarities before you can get to this place of really acknowledging the differences. Because the truth is, on the other, the same, other side of that same coin, there are differences in same-sex relationships that are important to acknowledge and delineate and really celebrate. But I think we are in this phase of similar to with uh, the same-sex relationships issue, the non-monogamy movement is going to have to go through this phase of really acknowledging how it is not a threat, how it is okay, how it is safe, how this is just your polyamorous neighbor next door who looks like you and is similar to you, and also for, for it to be safer for people to come out. Because you also know through the contact hypothesis, one of the strongest factors for predicting people changing their attitudes and having a more accepting attitude towards a marginalized identity or population is exposure. Yeah. And so really for this non-monogamy movement to move forward, it has to feel safe enough for there to be enough social support for people to feel comfortable coming out. And then once we see that happen, I, I anticipate we'll see some sort of a domino effect. I'm curious to see where the numbers will go in terms of acceptance and also with the number of people that, that practice, because, you know, in some ways it's similar to, uh, the, the queer rights 
movement in terms of people who are non-monogamous are nested within communities. Um, and uh, people may not know it because they're not out um, or disclosing about it. But many more people seem to acknowledge uh, experiencing attraction to more than one person than experiencing attraction to the same sex. So I'm really curious to see where this unfolds and how this unfolds as it becomes increasingly safe to talk about being non-monogamous. Well, you know, on a very fundamental level, Heath, all of us are attracted to a variety of people at various times mm -hmm. in our lives. Mm -hmm. And if we really are honest and look ourselves in the right. mirror, we have right. to acknowledge that, right. that none of us are simply right. only attracted to one person, right. whether it's going into the grocery store or going right. into wherever we go, right? Right. And there are attractions. Right. The issue is what do we do with those attractions yes. and how do we yes. live with them? And right. How do yes. we manifest them? Yeah. And, and so I, I think this uh, once people are willing to acknowledge yeah. the attraction aspect, then Correct. this movement yes. is going to, you know, it's going to open up and take off. Yeah. You know, I mentioned that issue about, you know, normative because I, I have a real concern about normative, the word normative and normalization. And I'll give you an example. Right now, roughly 72% of the United States are obese or overweight. From my perspective, it's one of, if not the biggest health challenges facing the United States and maybe the country. Because 72% of our country being obese or overweight is not sustainable. Furthermore, yeah. Some of our colleagues, psychologists, uh, who are a statistician and computational psychologists, are predicting that within the next 10 years, 87% of our country will yeah, be wow. obese or overweight. Mm -hmm. Yes. Wow. wow. What that means, Heath, is that normal in the United States, if you want to go by what's normative uh, statistically, normal will be an overweight or obese person. And people like yourself and myself will be abnormal. We will be out at the edges of the bell curve. So using normal as something to be strived for is, is, getting, is, a, is very questionable from a certain perspective. That all that languaging that we use, you know, and the importance of being normal. When I think when yeah. people start thinking about if, if, if aberrant becomes a majority, then normal is an aberrant condition, and it's something yeah. to I know. So I just yeah. wanted to, you know. Well, well, even what that what that prompts me to think about is how it has become normal for us to acknowledge the, uh, um, uh, or in terms of our awareness or exposure to infidelity in monogamous relationships, right? But I I think it that what the promise that non monogamy holds is simply shining a light or providing a contrast to a paradigm of how, how to approach relationships, right? These are just, uh, they're, they're, they're just different strategies to try and navigate our dual desire for security and longevity in a relationship with our desire for novelty and newness and self-expansion. And so what we know is that in a, the, what right, right now it seems like there's this one size fits all model of monogamy that we are promoting to everyone. That this is what you should do. This is how you should act. And when we just step back and look at it, we see that a third of relationships in that 
uh, monogamous relationships experience infidelity, which continues to be the leading cause of divorce in monogamous uh, relationships across cultures. Over 50% of American adults report that they have been cheated on in a monogamous relationship in their lifetime. And of those who have been cheated on, three quarters of them choose to break up with their relationship partner because of infidelity. And despite this, we seem to be hesitant to explore other options for talking about how to create space to talk about that dual desire for attraction to other. Again, I don't think non-monogamy is a panacea, but I'm really thoughtful as a psychologist of what is the impact on our culture and society by not examining the alternative or not teaching people about concepts such as compersion or the opposite of jelly or even by not normalizing that you will experience attraction to others, are we creating more brittleness in our relationship that ends up causing more harm, right? And infidelities is one of the topics, right? There's also sexless marriages, right? Around 15% of monogamous marriages, people in monogamous marriages haven't had sex with their spouse in the past year. Those percentages go up even more when you uh, define sexless by having sex once or having sex twice, right? And then also there's the issue of jealousy and domestic violence with some numbers indicating that up to 80% of domestic violence cases being due to jealousy uh, as the top motivating factor. So how much is promoting this one-size-fits-all model or that you shouldn't experience attraction uh, to others and really putting a cap on how we are talking about that in our conversations? How is it potentially unintentionally leading to these negative outcomes in relationships. Now, I'm not saying non-monogamy would fix all of that, but might it decrease those numbers that we are experiencing if in our culture it was more easeful to talk about your attraction to others in a healthy relationship? Yes, very much so. Of course, there's another another underlying issue here when you bring up uh, uh, non-fidelity or what's called cheating. And that is, to me, the fundamental issue behind what's called cheating is not the sexual act with the other person. It's the breaking of your word to your friend. Yeah. It's yeah. Your, break, your breaking of your word. You're breaking yeah. your word and you're happening to be breaking it in the area of sexuality. But if you make a deal with your best friend that you're not going to ever eat in a Chinese restaurant, and then you sneak into a Chinese restaurant, you're breaking your word. Now, I'm sure your friend isn't going to consider it as serious that you ate in the Chinese restaurant, then you fuck the girl next door because of the emphasis and the screwed upness that our country has about human sexuality. But for me, at a certain perspective, it is about integrity. And whether you lied yeah. about the restaurant or you right. lied about sex, it's still lying right. to your best friend. Right. And that's what I think is so interesting as well is because really what non-monogamy is trying to do is to be ethical, to acknowledge this capacity or this desire or this inclination and to create more space for dialogue about what to do about it. And it's it's so interesting to me as well, right? Because I think that on the surface, this is painted as a partisan issue or something that is the the topic that the left is more into and promoting. 
But I think it's so fascinating when we look at the representative uh, numbers of the of people who have engaged in consensual non-monogamy at some point in their life. Race, or excuse me, uh, political affiliation and religion are not predictive. So there's just as many people who identify as Republican and religious uh, that have engaged in consensual non-monogamy uh, and having an agreed upon uh, non-sexually exclusive relationship as there are people are that identify as liberal, right? Because, and especially because there's, there's um, the swinging uh, or lifestyle community, for example, tends to lean more uh, to the right than, for example, the polyamory or people who self-identify as polyamorous do. So it's, it's, it's interesting to me how uh, really this topic holds the potential in some regards or from some perspective to be bipartisan. And really, I think that the, that the narrative that really, I think I anticipate would resonate with everyone is that, Hey, look, let's, let's acknowledge that people have been doing this, where there's this capacity or there's this real risk in relationships of your partner cheating and you have options, right? Not everyone should engage in consensual non-monogamy. Not everyone should, uh, it's not going to be a healthy or the best route for everyone, but let's talk about it. Let's create more space to normalize how this is a common thing that comes up in relationships. And we're not saying that that's, it's not a license to do that. And even it's not a license to do that and then say, oh, I'm non-monogamous. You can't be mad at me, right? Like that's, no, we have to acknowledge the impact of the breach of trust. And it, it feels a little bit like a separate conversation is, it, uh, you know, in terms of how do we acknowledge either one, is it a relationship orientation or is there a biological inclination? And how can we help all relationships by normalizing non-monogamy and infusing that in the conversations that we're having so that people are better prepared to how handle the real life challenges that come with being in a relationship over, over the years, right? And I think especially with the law of diminishing utility, uh, the Coolidge effect, right? To where your interest in your uh, sexual partner, just like your interest in a Snickers candy bar, after you have a Snickers candy bar for many, many years, starts to evolve or shift. How do we prepare people to effectively navigate those relatively reliable dynamics or changes that happen in a relationship by providing all options that are available on the table? It's interesting. You know, you mentioned that. The Snickers bar, how we ate them for years thinking they were with impunity, and then we find out various things and, and we stop. And I'm going through a similar thing in my personal life right now, and that is for the last 40 years or so, I have drifted much more in the direction of eating only organic food. It started about 40 years ago, and it came more and more until I got to the point where I only want to go to restaurants that have organic food, you know, I've become a, yeah. like a zealot. Yeah. So yeah. then recently, as a way of doing self-reflection and introspection and, and research, I started researching the health benefits and non-benefits of organic food. Now, to as a colleague, I hope to talk to you about this topic again in the future, the, uh, the food topic as well as the polyamory. And here's sure. why. Sure. Here's the reason, Heath. Okay. Everything I'm reading so far indicates there are no great health benefits from eating right. health, uh, organic food. It turns yeah. out that people who, who wash their vegetables and eat non-organic food 
are not having more problems than the rest of us. Whereas I got into this whole thing years ago, getting more and more certain that the pesticides and the way the cows were being treated and the terrible ways that the chickens were being treated were, were causing cancer. And so, of course, I went in the direction of what I thought was the healthier food. And now I'm reexamining it and I'm saying to my wife, gosh, you know, do we really need to look at our like we've become true believers of a cult? And, and maybe we've got to really look at this and say, the heck with it. Let's just eat regular food, because if, if science tells us there's no difference, why are we following this old cult behavior? Well, I think that there's, you know, you're indexing, it sounds like, on on the health benefits, and I'm aware of that as well. And I, and I hear you on uh, the health benefit argument. To me, what, what feels convincing, and I don't want to weigh too much, I suppose, in, in this yeah. conversation, but uh, in terms of the impact of the environment is is something that that still Fair feels enough. impactful for me um, uh, on, on, on that issue in particular. Yeah, point well taken. We'll come back. So I don't know how much more time we have. We know we're already at uh, 75 minutes. There is one other aspect of the polyamory uh, 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 topic that I want to discuss. Yeah, I leave it to you. If you want to come back another time, we'll talk about it or now. And that is um, finance. How do people work out their financial structure in polyamory uh, amorous relationships? Right. I think that that's certainly going to be a burgeoning um, issue or topic where there's going to be an increased uh, support or, or need for additional support and models. But I, I think in some ways it's um, you know up to the individuals to figure out how to navigate that. On, at a very basic level, it's no different than, than how people have to develop contracts and agreements uh, when they are in a community living circumstance, right? That they create uh -huh. their own agreements. And, uh, you know, there's plenty of examples of two in terms of wealth and inheritance, right? There's more than two children that you're yeah. having to make those agreements on. So I think in some regards, it's just, it's no different, or it's just as simple at a very basic level. What a number of people in the non-monogamous community indicate is that it is incredibly helpful, especially in later stage capitalism, uh, that we are in to have additional people that have uh, incomes that can contribute to their family, or it even allows them to then respond to the current uh, norms that we have uh, in terms of, of family to where you might be able to have one person that stays home with the kids and, and two other people that work, right? Because it's, it's not as easy for a, a single income uh, family to make it in the same way that it was in the 1940s and 50s, right. right? And so in some ways, I see more people just experiencing that pressure, economic pressure that are motivated to have family agreements. And it's not just non-monogamous families, right? There's chosen families. There's people that are engaging in creating community uh, living for, in part, this reason uh, because of economic pressures, especially I see it in the Bay Area, right, with how uh, challenging it is to uh, get access to housing. Understandably, it's much more common here in other uh, cities that housing is so, so expensive that you're seeing more people that are moving towards community housing. And they're not necessarily dating. They may or may not be dating, right, but they are creating agreements in terms of how to manage uh, shared finances. Maybe 40 years ago, 40, 50 years ago, I was influenced by the visionary architect Paolo Solari. Mm -hmm. And Paolo Solari has a place in uh, 
in uh, in Arizona uh, called uh, Arcosante, and I went there and visited Arcosante and the communal living situation that he built, envisioned and built, was central headquarters that had the kitchen and the dining room and the recreation area and the various communal areas. And then people had their own sleeping rooms or couples or triples or whatever, their own places to sleep, but there wasn't duplication or triplication or et cetera of all the other amenities. In other words, people didn't all have their own stove, their own refrigerator, their own vacuum cleaner, their own automobile, et cetera. They had their own living space and then everything else was shared. So we, we tried that at Wilbur Hot Springs. I was influenced and we did that at Wilbur in the early years. Yeah. Yeah. It was delicious. It was rich. It was soulful. It was joyful. And over time, it eroded because little by little, people wanted their own this and their own that and their own yeah. this and their own that. And before yeah. we knew it, people had their own what we call homes with their own refrigerator and their own stove and their and their own vacuum yeah. cleaner. And yeah. it was fascinating. It's been fascinating to watch. And it's yeah. really wonderful to me, for me to see that there's a rejuvenation in experimentation with different forms of lifestyle. Because you and I know, Heath, there is no one way. There's yeah, only there's right. only experimentation with yes. how best to live in this world. Right. Yeah. And that there's those kind of competing interests of security, stability, uh, um, having control over your own environment, and also the parts of us that are very social uh, that that really want to be around people, and I think that there's going to be challenges uh, over the long run of indexing in either direction, right? That there's going to be pros and cons of each model and pros and cons of each model over time, and I think it's important to provide structure and support for people to have access to both, right? Like right now. It's, it's really difficult to find spaces and it's cost prohibitive to try to find spaces where you can have that type of an environment where there is, say, a, a communal kitchen or there's different wings to a house, right? The current system is not really designed to be flexible to allow for uh, the, the myriad of different approaches to creating security and longevity and health in families and relationships. Right. We've created an architecture to support a particular kind of system. Right. And the right. architecture is going to have to catch up to support new forms. Correct. Yep. That's right. It, it's been inspiring talking to you today. I believe you've inspired me from one of my next books. And <laughs> I'm thinking as we're talking, how to come up with a different word and so far, in the back of my mind, I hear ethical sexuality, a hmm. sort of b- borrowing from Janet Hardy's book, The Ethical Slut. Mm-hmm. I, 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 that has a certain appeal. But let's do this again. I hope you'll come back. I know you said you'd help me with the book, which I appreciate. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time for this interview today. It's really been uh, uh, educational and helpful. Thank you. I, it's an honor to be on here and I appreciate your interest in this topic. And it's, you know, Richard, it's, it's an exciting time because never in 
the history of our lifetimes, right? Has there been this opportunity to really make an impact? Non-monogamy is entering the Overton window to where substantial uh, policy changes are possible. And uh, it's so exciting to see that that groups are starting to form. And so I'm honored to help you with the book and this process and collaborate. And certainly if any of your listeners are wanting any additional support exploring this, they can reach out to me as a coach or a psychotherapist. I also offer consultation to different organizations that are wanting to update their policies to be more inclusive of the non-monogamous population. And also, as I mentioned at one point, we're in the process of establishing a what would be the first ever institute at uh, a major institution. And we're in the process of fundraising for that and certainly would love to receive support by any of your listeners or support around that happening. Cause I really think that that's would be really important, not just for the non-monogamous movement for, but for all families and relationships more broadly. How, how's best way for our listeners and readers to reach you? Sure. You can contact me on my website. It's just uh, DR, so doctor, and then uh, my last name, Scheckinger. And then I'm on all socials at DR Scheckinger. You better spell Scheckinger for us. <laughs> You're probably right. So it's S C H E C H I N G E R. My mom actually used to sing to the to the Mickey Mouse song. She would go S C H E C H I N G E R. Scheckinger. That's great. Well, so that's how we learned our last name. All right. Thanks. Where'd you grow up? I actually grew up in a small town in Iowa. And actually, most people don't know this, but I was on my way of getting a master's degree in ministry, actually, before I ended up leaving my master's program and then pursued a PhD in counseling psychology. You got to tell me what small town in Iowa. I grew up in a small town called Harlan, Iowa. It's in the southwest part of the state. It's about an hour east of Omaha, Nebraska. My wife grew up in a little tiny town in Iowa called Sioux City. Oh, yeah. I know Sioux City. We grew up not too far from there. I uh, participated in, in different sporting against uh, Sioux City Healing and Sioux City East and, <laughs> and the different uh, schools uh, in that area. So, yes, I'm certainly familiar with Sioux City. Well, until next time, thanks again, Heath. Thanks again, Richard. And thank you all, dear listeners. I remind you that this program will be archived and we are open source. That means you can listen to it without fee as you can listen to all the archives for the last 20 years without fee, because we want to make this available to the most of you and not based on how much money you have. Remember that we broadcast every Tuesday morning at 9 o'clock, in addition to the archives. Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is the website. Just remember that, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. And if you care to, you might look at one of my recent books, Psychedelic Medicine, more recently, Psychedelic Wisdom, and just recently, integrative, integ <laughs> Integral Psychedelic Therapy, all available, of course, on Amazon. So thanks again, and until next time, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Hi, Eva Cheska here again. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, and we encourage you to share it with others. All of our programs are archived and are open source, which means that you can listen to them anytime, anywhere, anyplace through our website free of charge. We also invite you to check out my dad's books. 
psychedelic medicine, the healing powers of LSD, MDMA, psilocybin, and ayahuasca, psychedelic wisdom, the astonishing rewards of psychedelic substances, and integral psychedelic therapy, the non-ordinary art of psycho-spiritual healing, co-edited. Stay tuned for a new episode of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics every week. And if you want advance notice of our upcoming guests, you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Until next time, this is Evacheska DeAngelis wishing you good health. Oh!